Not everyone's lucky enough to walk out of the hospital after two days, you know? So we, we saw what this disease can do. So guess what? We are afraid. We are. I'm so happy that you did. You know, thank God you did. But guess what? There are a lot of people that did it. Amanda Klutz, the wife of Broadway star Nick Cordero, who fought the coronavirus for 95 days before dying, puts the president's handling of his own diagnosis and treatment in stark perspective. One week ago today, President Trump told the country he had tested positive for coronavirus. Now, the president is declaring himself fit and urging Americans to downplay the disease. I learned so much about coronavirus. And one thing that's for certain, don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. But the virus is dominating the lives of so many Americans who don't have the best medical care that this country offers. A private hospital stay, early access to therapeutics, and a team of top physicians were all readily available to this president, which is as it should be, but not to the vast majority of Americans. Hello, everyone. I'm CNN senior political reporter Nia Malika Henderson. And I'm CNN political director David Chalian. Welcome to Politically Sound. The president's health has put health care front and center, including the future of the Affordable Care Act. Donald Trump is in court right now trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. Obamacare was a disaster. The American people remember it well. So, in this episode, we'll tell you how health care, one of the most important issues in presidential politics, will impact the 2020 election. We'll also hear directly from someone affected by this crisis, Dr. Chris T. Purnell from New Jersey. She'll tell us what it was like losing her father to COVID-19, the importance of health insurance during a pandemic, and how the standard of care differed for her father and the president. The fact that he was able to get in a car and parade when my dad couldn't get out of a hospital to go get his favorite meal. To see the president do that, it was humiliating in some ways, as if to say, I have access to a world that you could only dream of. So it's time to tune out the noise and tune in to what's politically sound. David, so let's just dive in. I will say I continue to be shocked uh, that the president has COVID. Even given his diagnosis, he is ramping up his downplaying of the disease. And when you have a situation where so many people are struggling with this virus, 7 million uh, diagnosed, 210,000 dead, what are the optics for this president? uh, And what does this mean for him politically? Well, the the optics aren't good, and it doesn't mean very good things for him politically, although he seems to think otherwise. He seems to think, Nia, that he can lean into this notion of uh, being a warrior who has vanquished uh, this virus and that that is going to be sort of a rallying cry 
uh, to his supporters. It may be, except that he is so upside down with the American public at large and portions of the American public that were part of a 2016, his 2016 coalition and that he desperately needs back into the fold if he's going to win re-election. They're on the other side of this. That's his problem. And so when he comes home from the hospital and climbs those stairs and, and stands on the balcony overlooking the South Lawn and rips off the mask and sends this horrific message to the country, to the world, doing something that every expert worth their weight on this issue says is the wrong message. That is a man who is sort of become more and more isolated politically to an island where I think he's going to find it over these next many weeks very hard to sort of build the bridge back that he needs to the mainland, if you will, uh, to, to be able to be successful in this effort. The one bit of political peril he seems to understand is the notion that his care as president could be seen as unequal to how Americans get care generally uh, should they contract the coronavirus. And when he had the White House videographer make a video uh, out in the Rose Garden this week, he addressed that by promising everyone that they should get the same level of care that he does. I walked in, I didn't feel good. A short 24 hours later, I was feeling great. I went to get out of the hospital. And that's what I want for everybody. I want everybody to be given the same treatment as your president. So, Nia, this does raise the issue of health care more broadly at this moment in time in this race. And it's something you know that's been a major factor in presidential races going back to Ted Kennedy in 1980. And let us resolve that the state of a family's health shall never depend on the size of a family's wealth. Barack Obama in 2008. Certainly, I don't accept the idea that in the richest country on earth, we should have 47 million people without health insurance. And Mitt Romney in 2012. I will act to repeal Obamacare. I know we talk a lot about the pandemic, but what do you see as the status of the larger health care battle three weeks out from Election Day? very much front and center. It reminds me of 2018, the issue of health care. That's where a lot of the ad spending went. That fight over the ACA was in many ways why the Democrats were able to take the House. Right now, if you look at where Obamacare stands among the general public, it's more popular than it's ever been. 57% of Americans favor the ACA. Now it is on a footing and a sure footing in a way that it hasn't been before. And you can tell that Democrats really want to lean into this. They're on offense in this in a way they hadn't been in the early days of ACA. Listen to Kamala Harris in the debate of this week as she's pressing the Republicans about what their plan would be if the ACA is tossed out. If you have a pre-existing condition, heart disease, diabetes, breast cancer, they're coming for you. If you love someone who has a pre-existing condition, they're coming for you. If you are under the age of 26 on your parents' coverage, they're coming for you. That is the big challenge for Republicans. As much as they had uh, this idea of repeal and replace, they never really had a replacement plan. 
So what we have here is a couple of things going on. A week after this election, the Supreme Court will hear a case involving the ACA uh, as Republicans attempt to say that it's unconstitutional because part of the law has already uh, been tossed out, this individual mandate. So that's part of the dialogue, too, as Democrats want to make their case that maybe the ACA isn't perfect, even though people uh, have come to like it more than they had in the past. But it's certainly better than what the Republicans have to offer, which is at this point, nothing. I mean, how long have we been waiting uh, for the Republicans to come up with something? Uh, Donald Trump can talk all all he wants about executive orders and there's a plan that's coming. There is no plan that is here at this point. And you can tell that Democrats really sense an opening here with this pandemic, with this Supreme Court case and this Supreme Court opening, and a sense that uh, there is uh, all sorts of inequality in the healthcare system, something that Donald Trump is clearly cognizant of, as he seems to promise there, some sort of gold-plated government-sponsored healthcare plan, at least when it comes to COVID. So we talked a little bit about the Republicans' non-plan. David, what is Vice President Biden's plan when it comes to healthcare? Well, his plan is to build on Obamacare. I mean, this was one of the big battles during the entire 2019-2020 Democratic nomination season. Obviously, when it ended up just uh, down to Bernie Sanders versus Joe Biden, it was one of the clearest distinctions between the two. The Democratic Party uh, went with the guy who wants to sort of expand Obamacare, not the guy who wants to throw it all out and implement uh, Medicare for all. And, uh, you know, the Trump-Pence campaign wants to hang Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan around the necks of Biden and Harris. And you heard Vice President Pence try to do exactly that on the debate stage this week. President Trump and I trust the American people to make choices in the best interest of their health. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris consistently talk about mandates, and not not just mandates with the coronavirus, but a government takeover of health care. Thank you. It's not that Biden just wants to sort of let Obamacare be as it is. He uh, wants to move towards that public option that uh, was so debated back at the time uh, that didn't get included in the original Obamacare uh, legislation. And I think Biden would acknowledge that a Medicare for all style system may be something he could see in the offing, you know, in sort of a generation or so or maybe not even that long. But it is not at all. If there is to be a President Biden, what anybody listening to this podcast should expect to see from him. He's simply not going to pursue that uh, when it comes to health care. That's not his approach. And his running mate, who is a co-sponsor on that Bernie Sanders bill and started her primary campaign for the presidency with that notion of being okay with getting rid of private insurance, she spent much of her failed primary campaign trying to, like, twist herself on a pretzel and walk back from that, which is why, again, now the Trump campaign uh, is trying to utilize that in some way. The problem is she walked back from it. It's not Joe Biden's position. So trying to tag them with this, it just doesn't work for voters because it doesn't meet the reality of what Joe Biden is proposing. Right. And sort of the scare tactics around the ACA in general don't really work in the way that they did before. But it's much more turbocharged in many ways, uh, the discussion around healthcare because of what's going on with this pandemic. When we come back, we'll hear from Dr. Chris Purnell. She'll tell you her story of losing her father and what the president's comments this week showed her about the healthcare system. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back. More than 210,000 Americans have died from the coronavirus and more than 7 million have been infected. But those staggering numbers sometimes make it difficult to grasp the human element of the pandemic. So this week, we want to share with you the personal story of just one family impacted by the disease and what it means for our healthcare system. I'm Dr. Chris T. Purnell. I'm a preventive medicine and public health physician at a hospital in Newark, New Jersey. Growing up as a child, I can recall pretty early on being fascinated by being a doctor. And I don't know that that's so unusual from so many other little kids, but I can tell you by the sixth grade, I was pretty much hooked. It took me some time and actually some maturity and some courage to back myself out of a traditional clinical career and to land in preventive medicine and public health. My father came of age in the Jim Crow South. Ultimately, one fateful day, my father got hired at Bell Labs in Murray Hill. He was hired as a part of grounds crew. That was all that was available for him, cutting grass. My dad went from cutting grass to ascending the research throne, I like to say. And ultimately, my father became a member of technical staff. But my dad did that without ever formally going to college. He was self-taught. He didn't take vacations. He didn't take breaks. He worked every day of his life. He loved the news. He loved history, National Geographic. (laughs) We watched that a lot. Uh, And he loved sports. So he was quite a character. Um, and he was living out what I call the home stretch of his life. He endured challenges, whether they were social challenges. He endured challenges, whether they were medical challenges. My father also had longstanding emphysema, and my father actually got diagnosed with um, an end-stage lymphoma that he had started chemotherapy for. And so we sent him to the hospital just to be evaluated. Suddenly one day, my father comes down with violent shaking chills, a very, very high fever, and oxygen desaturations that they had to call the rapid response team. I get a phone call from his doctor. It's very hectic. Um, It's frantic. But then it happened again. He had at least three episodes like that. And that's when I knew, I said, my father has coronavirus. And we tested him, and we got the confirmation, I want to say, toward the end of March. Within 10 days, max two weeks, my dad was dead. I was able to get my brother to go up the night before to pray with him, and I hurried over. um, And when I got to the garage, I parked my car, boom, that's when I got the phone call that he had passed. It was surreal. We had planned out my father's funeral. 
we talked about death. We talked about how he wanted to be buried, the service we would have at his father's church. We couldn't do any of that. All of that was upended. We, we couldn't have people from the lab come. I mean, at one point we had to discuss how many of us could go to the funeral home to observe him. And so I don't know if people understand how disjointed, how unnatural that felt. But he finally got some peace. And I took comfort in that. Because he fought. My dad was a fighter. But he got peace. When I see the president downplaying the virus or telling people don't be afraid of COVID or don't let COVID dominate your life, my first reaction is an incredulous reaction. Like, are you serious? Do you realize that 210,000 plus Americans have died? Do you realize how many multiples of millions have been infected? My second reaction is my sister's reaction where she says to me, Chris, when I read that tweet, I cried. I stopped and I cried. That's just a level of insensitivity, a lack of empathy, um, a devaluing of someone else's human experience that I would just hope an American president would not do. It's devaluing my father's story. It's devaluing my father's humanity. The fact that he was able to get in a car and parade when my dad couldn't get out of a hospital to go get his favorite meal when he was under isolation. At some point, we couldn't get in to see my father. To see the president do that, it was humiliating in some ways, as if to say, I have access to a world that you could only dream of. And there are two Americas, and the president's actions allowed us to see how stark the differences are for the majority of those struggling with coronavirus, whether they're in a hospital or not. When I look at the care the president has received and I compare the care that my father received, I am confronted with two different stark realities. What we have been witnessing actually is a collision of two pandemics and how the healthcare system responds to both of those pandemics. We have been witnessing a slow pandemic for 400 plus years. That's the pandemic of systemic racism. Then comes this novel coronavirus. And at first you hear people saying coronavirus is the great equalizer because anybody can get it. While anybody can get it, what makes coronavirus, the rates of infection or exposure, um, the rates of hospitalization, the rates of um, mortality more staggering for some communities than for others is systemic racism. I lost my father to the pandemic and I have an older sister who is a long hauler who's struggling to recover. So too many people are left behind. And that's what the pandemic showed us. Um, It showed us uh, the difficulties that we still grapple with. What I would say to those who are still struggling with coronavirus um, or to families who are 
loving and supporting a loved one who is struggling with coronavirus, that sometimes it is darkest right before the dawn. And what I mean by that is with everything within you, fight um, and hold on. There are millions of us who are in a similar position, whether we're grieving, whether we're loving someone through the struggle, um, hold on and find ways to connect with that community, whether it is virtually, whether it is in person, but physically distanced. Um, hold on. We want to offer our heartfelt thanks to Dr. Purnell for sharing that story with us and our deepest condolences, our thoughts, and prayers to her family. Now, what's truly amazing is that Dr. Purnell has been inspired by her loss to take action to help fight the disease by volunteering in a vaccine trial. And David, I want to bring you in here to talk about some of what she shared. What do you make of her reaction to the president downplaying the virus? that killed her father while receiving such a high standard of care for himself. Yeah, I, first of all, just commend her bravery in uh, telling her story as compellingly as she does. And as you noted, going to be part of a vaccine trial, uh, that's pretty brave also, heart-wrenching stuff. You know, Nia, I think her reaction to President Trump saying, uh, don't be afraid of it, don't let it dominate you, is the most natural reaction that anybody who has encountered or experienced coronavirus in some personal way with a family member or a coworker or a neighbor, who wouldn't have that reaction, you know? And I understand that, uh, as I was mentioning before, that Trump thinks he can be that person that vanquished this. And so uh, the idea that he thinks that that's how a majority of people could see it, yeah, maybe his most ardent supporters will once again find that appealing and attractive. But that's, you know, been the entire story of Trump's presidency, just appealing to his most uh, vocal and um, diehard supporters is not a path to reelection if he wants to keep his job in just a few weeks. Right, and underscores another big problem he has had, certainly with women voters and really all voters, and that is just his sheer lack of empathy. It's almost like he just wants to ignore the fact that 210,000 people and counting are dead. So, uh, you know, a, a real, real uh, shame here, I think, from the president to be so dismissive of the real heartache that so many Americans have been experiencing because of COVID. David, let's take a step back and really try to connect all of these dots. I feel like there are a lot of other things. you got the Supreme Court, race and social justice, even the pandemic. You know, they've kind of overshadowed the fight over health care in this election, even though in some ways all of those things uh, can be connected. What role do you see health care playing in November? Yeah, all those things are definitely connected. And health is going to play a huge role. I mean, this has been the defining issue for the Democratic Party in the Trump era, right? Like, in terms of the defining successful issue. And I thought one of uh, our poll findings this week from our CNN national poll was so telling when you looked at the issue matrix of what the most important issues were to the vote of 
Biden supporters versus the most important issues to the vote of Trump supporters. When you look at healthcare specifically, I mean, a significant majority of Biden supporters say healthcare is extremely important to their vote. Trump voters in our poll, it was a much lower down priority healthcare. They were much more jazzed up about the economy, about crime and safety, that law and order message. Both Biden and Trump supporters were into the Supreme Court, where again, uh, this is this issue is going to come uh, front and center, obviously. But this issue, it is what delivered Nancy Pelosi, the speaker's gavel, back into her hand uh, just a couple of years ago. It is uh, because of what you were talking before, that whole notion from Republicans of repeal and replace. I mean, both pieces of that blew up. Uh, Because you can't have one without the other. They have made some progress in getting rid of unpopular things. The individual mandate, totally unpopular. They got rid of it, and the law did not fall apart, right? People still are able uh, to operate on these exchanges even without uh, the individual mandate in place, with that penalty in place. Obamacare has never been more popular than it is right now. A majority of the country says they don't want the Supreme Court to overturn it. And so you are going to see Democrat after Democrat, down-ballot races and at the presidential level, lean so hard into this over the next three weeks because it is their political life force because it's where the country is. And it's where and how Americans are living every day because of this pandemic. They are thinking about their health and their health care in a way that they hadn't before. And now you've got this court case and this battle over uh, replacing RBG with somebody who could uh, strip away the ACA. And if you are a Senate Republican who is running in any of these states, right, you think about Colorado, Montana, Arizona, North Carolina, you would really like to be able to say something that is going to convince voters that you have a plan, that this president has a plan. You know, he can talk all he wants about executive orders, but that is thin gruel, really, when you compare what the ACA actually does. And now you have Democrats on the offense and Republicans with little defense because they don't have a plan after all of these many, many years of talking about repeal and replace. So that's it for this week's episode of Politically Sound. Thanks so much for listening. If you could take a few minutes to give us an excellent rating and a review, that'd be awesome. And please subscribe if you haven't already, wherever you get your podcasts. You can hold your non-excellent ratings, everyone. (laughs) Politically Sound is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Will Cadigan and Mimi Mutesa. Haley Thomas is the senior producer. Raj Makisha is the senior production manager, and Francisco Monroy is our engineer. David Toledo is the team's production assistant, and a special thanks to Abby Sharp for her help on this week's episode. The executive producer of CNN Audio is Megan Marcus. We'll see you all next week. 